he's hacker. So much so that I had to ask around. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of a nice guy, right? Hacker is an ass. I try as I'm getting into my old age at 39 years old. Try not to let things bother me. Just know that I'm ultra soft. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. See Baker Mayfield throw four passes. But, uh, but I get to see this homeless guy return a ball for oh, a touchdown. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Tuesday night to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us. Our late show. Are you kidding me? Ladies and gentlemen of Jacksonville, Florida, Jaguar fans, two days after the biggest collapse in franchise history, let me ask you something. Where else would you rather be right now? Then at 10.01 Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday night, then right here with yours truly on Hacker After Dark. And we certainly appreciate you staying up late with us. Guest lineup tonight, Justin Barney of Channel 4. He was down in the Jaguar locker room yesterday. He was at the Doug Peterson season-ending press conference yesterday. Justin Barney of Channel 4 will stop by in less than 20 minutes. As I talked to uh, Rick Ballou there on the two-minute drill, the end of an era in college football, the next time a college football game is played, it'll be all about the playoff and it'll be all about the new look. The next time we see college football, Oklahoma and Texas will be in the Southeastern Conference. Southern Cal, UCLA, Oregon, Washington will be in the Big Ten. Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah will be in the Big 12. And, of course, Cal, Stanford, SMU will be in the ACC. Absolutely crazy to think about. But we'll put a wrap on Michigan's national title win last night and take a look at the college football offseason with my buddy Brent Beard. That comes up in less than 40 minutes. But, obviously, we will begin with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Every night here on Hacker After Dark, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. When you have a collapse of historic proportions, which is what Jacksonville had, over the last six weeks, from eight and three to missing the playoffs, one would believe that there might have been some internal issues going on behind closed doors, behind that curtain, if you will. And do I know that with 100% certainty? No, I don't. I would be lying to you if I said I had not heard things, but you hear a lot of things. Some are true, some aren't. But I go with facts, and I go with reality. And the reality of the situation is, less than 48 hours after the Jaguar season ended abruptly in Nashville, Tennessee, Doug Peterson fired nine, I believe, nine or ten assistant coaches, including his defensive coordinator, Mike Caldwell. The crazy thing to think about is what would have happened had Calvin Ridley caught that ball in Nashville and ran into the end zone 
What would have happened if the Jaguars got that two-point conversion? Maybe won the game in overtime. Not that far-fetched. That means the Jaguars right now would be preparing for an AFC playoff game here at home. And obviously, those 10 coaches that have been fired in the last 48 hours would still be here. It'd be status quo. And then what happens if the Jaguars were to beat Cleveland in wildcard weekend? You're not going to fire coaches, right, after a playoff win. I'm not sure if you fire all those coaches after a division title. Obviously, prior to the game in Tennessee, there were issues. There were things that were wrong behind closed doors. That is the only explanation for firing 10 coaches, including a coordinator, less than 48 hours after the biggest collapse in the history of the franchise. Now, how quickly can those issues be resolved? Are those issues resolved by the guys that are gone? Josina Anderson, who's covered the NFL for years, earlier today on social media, Twitter slash X, had a very, very interesting thing to say. I assume most of you have seen this already. If not, bear with me. This is Josina Anderson earlier. Obviously, carousel season is a difficult time for many NFL personnel members. That including that includes different viewpoints on the emphasis for change and improvement. To that end, here's word from one coach who is leaving the Jaguars. One would assume this is one of the 10 that was fired. Quote, the solutions are leaving and the problems are staying. Woo. Sour grapes, perhaps. Probably some of that, certainly. The solutions are leaving and the problems are staying. Well, let's think about that. The solutions are not leaving. If they were solutions, you would have seen a better product on the field. And the Jaguar defense was awful in five out of the last six games. They played well against Carolina. By the way, Carolina also got shut out on Sunday by Tampa. They end with back-to-back shutout performances. But when Jake Browning, Joe Flacco, Baker Mayfield, and Ryan Tannehill go through like a hot knife through butter and you only had to win one of those games to get in the playoffs, I don't know how many solutions there were on the Jaguar defense. And with seven defensive coaches being fired yesterday, one would believe that one of those defensive coaches is the one that gave that quote to NFL reporter Josina Anderson. Again, quote, the solutions are leaving, the problems are staying. I don't believe the first part of that. Now, the second part of that is very interesting as well. The problems are staying. So who are you talking about? Are you talking about Trent Baalke? Are you talking about Press Taylor? Are you talking about some of the offensive assistants? Or are you talking about Doug Peterson? I don't know. Again, sour grapes, sure. But what a quote to start a Tuesday morning. 
one of the Jaguar coaches that was dismissed. Quote, the solutions are leaving. The problems are staying. Hmm. Obviously, there was things going on behind the scenes. Obviously, there were issues. Obviously, when you have a player like Dewey Winger, a team captain on Sunday with microphones in front of him and a camera on his face saying people were not, a, were not playing assignment football, there was not a lot of assignment football being played down the stretch, what do you think that means? That means players were doing their own thing. Players were freelancing. Did they not listen to the coaches? Did the coaches' message not get through to these guys? How many times did we hear Doug Peterson in the last six weeks talk about turnovers and protecting the ball and pre-snap penalties and self-inflicted wounds? And it never seemed to matter because every game, turnovers, pre-snap penalties, Self-inflicted wounds. And now here we are, less than 48 hours after the Jaguar season ended, and upwards of 10 assistant coaches, including one coordinator, have been fired. And one of them leaving the organization says the solutions are leaving, the problems are staying. Translation, there were problems with this organization this year. How quick life comes at you. From the darlings of the NFL last year, the 27-0 comeback, all the preseason hype, to now having to hire basically an entire brand new defensive staff, having the fan base spitting mad that your general manager and your offensive coordinator are still staying here. Man alive. Crazy how quick the narrative has changed here in Jacksonville, Florida. As I mentioned earlier, Mike Vrabel out in Nashville with the Tennessee Titans. Good. I think that's a terrible move by Tennessee. I think Mike Vrabel is one hell of a coach. Mike Vrabel got his 5-11 and team who had absolutely nothing to play for, much more prepared, much more focused, and much more ready to play than the 9-7 and Jaguars who had everything to play for. And you're going to fire that guy two days later? And I thought it was ridiculous what Tennessee did today. Ridiculous. Amy Adams Strunk, the owner, does a softball interview with their play-by-play man, Mike Keith, where he's just lofting her softball questions on the team website. And then she sends general manager Rand Carthon in to the lion's den to talk with the Nashville media about Mike Vrabel's dismissal. What is that? You're going to fire the guy, and then you're not going to answer questions about it? You're going to do a five-minute fluff piece from the team website? That was a bad look in Tennessee today. Bad look. We'll see what happens, but I'll tell you this. It's the first piece of good news the Jaguars have had in 48 hours. Getting Mike Vrabel out of the division? I love that. I think that is a mistake by Tennessee. Big time mistake. 641-1010 is the phone number on the text line designed by Lifetime Enclosures. Guest lineup again looks like this. A little college football in a half an hour. Coming up next, my man Justin Barney of Channel 4. He was down at the Miller Electric Center yesterday. 
He talked with Josh Allen. He talked with Calvin Ridley. He was in the Doug Peterson press conference. Let's get his take on the players. He has some interesting things to say, particularly about a conversation he had with Josh Allen. Justin Barney, Channel 4, next Tuesday night edition of Hacker After Dark. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. We are now a couple of days removed from the Jaguar season, remarkably coming to an end with the loss up in Tennessee. A little more salt in the wound poured in today when you find out the Titans fire Mike Vrabel two days after they knocked Jacksonville out of the playoffs. Just an amazing turn of events. Let's talk to a man that was down at the Miller Electric Center yesterday in the Jaguar locker room. That's my friend Justin Barney from Channel 4, always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Justin, how we doing? Not too bad, Hack. Thanks for having me. Can't uh, can't believe we're not talking about playoff coverage this week. Justin, I mean, look, the, the number one question I'm asking everybody, it's a simple question. How? How did we get here? How did we get from 8-3 and three to now the season being over? How did this happen? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, in, in the locker room yesterday when we were talking to players and kind of trying to survey the carnage of how things went wrong, I asked Josh Allen, I said, how, you know, what was the difference between this season and last season? You played perfect and uh, you, you knew you had to be perfect and delivered. And he uh, was very honest and, and said, I thought we went back to the fundamentals in December when things were struggling and falling apart. And I didn't um, necessarily think that was the best thing to do. You know, last year, Jacksonville was able to, to play perfect down the stretch when they needed to. They knew that they had to be uh, clean and win games. There was no margin for error. This year, was there was margin for error. And uh, you're 8-3 you're and three when you enter December and playing for the number one seed in the playoffs. And, you know, Josh Allen really elaborated on that yesterday and, and said he thought that Jacksonville coaching staff took things way back to the basics, the fundamentals, instead of just trying to let those guys win games. And when I asked Doug Peterson about that, he said, yeah, last year wasn't sustainable long-term. You can't have all these games like you win last year when you, when you needed that, you needed to focus more on fundamentals. So I thought that was a little telling yesterday to hear Josh Allen kind of give his input on, on what went wrong. And then Doug Peterson kind of going against the norm and said, Hey, these guys needed the fundamentals. They couldn't, they couldn't win like they did last year. So I thought that was a little bit telling, but I think uh, as the season, uh, we become a little more distance from that season. There's uh, all that speculation on, on what went wrong, but you definitely heard the players yesterday weigh in on what they thought. And I thought Josh Allen, uh, very insightful, very honest. And, you know, Christian Kirk said, Hey, we just, were not good enough. We just, were not ready. Um, the players are bought into the system, but there were a lot of guys that did not execute like they needed to. So I thought it was really a glimpse into a kind of behind the sheet a little bit yesterday to hear from players. And then from Doug Peterson on why this thing turned sideways so badly. Justin Barney of channel four. Now, Justin, when you were at the Doug Peterson, press conference nothing had come out publicly yet but since that press conference he has fired 10 uh, coaches on his staff including defensive coordinator Mike Caldwell uh, what did you make of the coaching firings last night and again this morning you know interesting that you know Doug was was asked yesterday about any coaching changes and he said hey I'm uh, I need to, to kind of take some time to process it and oh by the way three hours later I think Doug had uh, finished processing it and uh, the news came out about the coaching changes. So I think uh, yesterday at that press conference, he knew the changes that were going to be made. 
probably didn't want to answer all those questions yesterday. Um, and, and again, I don't think Mike Caldwell's a scapegoat defense the last six games of the season. I mean, your, your win was against Carolina, who uh, clearly had nothing to play for. The owner tossing drinks on people, the quarterback, uh, and not living up to that number one billing. So um, I don't think Mike Caldwell was a scapegoat. I, I do think there was some some issues uh, in that defensive locker room and that side of the ball and needed to be addressed. So interesting that there's really been no offensive changes other than the Bernie Parmalee issue. And that was, uh, that was interesting to me and, you know, Travis Etienne and back-to-back thousand yard seasons. Um, so interesting that there's not been any offensive staff shakeups yet. I don't know if that's still to come or we're just not going to see those. If uh, Doug Peterson's history uh, points to anything, he's not going to make those changes. You know, Press Taylor, he kind of went down with that ship in Philadelphia um, uh, kind of a, a issue with the owner and Jeffrey Lurie wanted to make those offensive changes. Doug Peterson did not. And uh, that hastened and uh, accelerated that exit of Doug Peterson in Philadelphia. So we'll be interesting to see if there are any offensive changes. Uh, you hope not because uh, you want to see that Trevor Lawrence growth. And I think a lot of it has to do with personnel not necessarily the coaching situations. Players yesterday uh, very publicly said, yeah, we believe in the coaching staff. We believe in the system. So uh, we'll be interesting to see if that personnel situation changes um, in, you know, in the press Taylor regards, anything on that offensive side of the ball staff. You know, among the Jaguar fan base, you look at it, and of the three guys, Mike Caldwell, Press Taylor, Trent Balky, I think Mike Caldwell had the least amount of venom coming his way. Uh, let's begin with Trent Balky. Do you believe the criticism of him is warranted by the fan base? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, when you put a product out there, you're based on results. Doug said it uh, at his press conference. You're only as good as your last game. You're as good as your last season. And, uh, you know, they weren't good this year. They weren't good in their last game. And when you look at coaching, uh, drafting, and developing around the league, when you when you see a Puka Nakua uh, in Los Angeles thriving as a late-round draft pick, you see the Hank Dells in Houston, and there's such the quick turnaround of Houston. I mean, Houston was a was a dumpster fire last year, and in one offseason – you get things cleaned up and corrected with a first-time head coach, with a rookie quarterback, uh, with a rookie first-rounder and Will Anderson, the great drafting of, of guys like Tank Dell. You turn it around and quickly, and I think that shines a light on Jacksonville and that inefficiency and, and the gross negligence of, uh, of drafting. It's just when you look back, even uh, predating Trent Baalke, I mean, just the drafting in this organization – um, under Shad Khan has been deplorable, unbelievably bad, uh, and you got to clean that up. You got to get more hits on on guys uh, like a Tyson Campbell, like an Andre Cisco, guys you find outside of that first round. And I think Trent wears that blame uh, as much as anybody, as he should, as he should. I don't think um, that venom, that anger by fans is misplaced. It's certainly, when you look around the league, uh, to see teams like Houston who have seemed to figure it out in, in a pretty quick window of time and. You hate to say it, but you don't want to think Jacksonville's window of opportunity is closed. But you've got a Gardner Minshew, a backup quarterback, leading the Colts to uh, the precipice of a, of a postseason. You've got a rookie quarterback in C.J. Stroud. Those guys had the second pick in the draft this past year, uh, getting it turned around quickly. And you, you hate to almost think that Jacksonville's window was this year to get it done. But uh, as we get further away from the season, you think that it may have already shut. Well, Justin, hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously, but – to me, I go back to last year. They go 10-9, and nine, if you include the postseason, 10-9 and nine in 19 games. And for Trent Baalke to essentially say, we're good. We're going to run it back. We're not going to do a thing in free agency. We're going to re-sign our own. That, to me, was a huge miscalculation. And I'll tell you another one. You were down there at training camp every day, just like I was. 
What did we talk about? Pass rush, pass rush, pass rush. They have nothing behind Josh Allen and Trayvon Walker. Now, Trayvon Walker and Josh Allen both had great years, which helped them, but they did not have anything behind them. And for called an arrogance, I'm not even sure the verbiage, if we in the media saw it, how can the guy getting paid millions of dollars not see that they were going to have trouble affecting the opposing quarterback? Yeah, and protecting the quarterback, too. I mean, the offensive line, I remember asking uh, Trent Baalke and Doug Peterson uh, prior to the draft about that situation, and they felt guys were, were developing and progressing in the offensive line. Uh, I know Trent felt pretty solid about it after getting Anton Harrison there to replace uh, Juwan Taylor, but it just did not – I don't know if it was a, just a poor miscalculation on, on guys making steps that didn't. I mean, you look at Luke Fortner, he regressed. Uh, Brandon Sheriff, not a good season. And I think that affected Trevor Lawrence. I mean, he was sacked 35 times in 16 games. That's more than uh, he was taken down in his rookie season, which is unbelievably bad year under Urban Meyer. So I don't know if it was just a gross miscalculation. I don't know if they did not feel like spending the money. I mean, um, in free agency to get some of those guys and making trade deadline deals to land a Chase Young or a Montez Sweat. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, we saw these issues. We talked about them uh, even before the draft. You know, I thought it was way too late uh, to, to focus on adding a pass rusher in the draft. Uh, they settled on Yusir Abdullah, and he was inactive for quite a few games. So you didn't address the issues that you needed to address. Um, I don't know if players felt like they needed to, to take some personnel moves, but asked Trevor Lawrence yesterday about about the offensive line issues and the struggles, and he said he, he felt that they could win and be a potentially great team with the guys they have currently in the locker room. Obviously, when fans hear that, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, so I do think Trent Baalke wears that blame, and I think it was a poor miscalculation in the offseason to, to really stand pat and run things back with a team that, uh, when you get down to it, needed a miracle to make the postseason. There was no you – know, it wasn't like Jacksonville just started blowing people off the field. They needed a massive, massive – uh, unbelievable run like we've not seen before to make that postseason. So um, I just think it was a bad miscalculation by Trent and Doug and that brain trust to not be more aggressive and to stand pat in that offseason when you really needed to kind of add more and take that next step. A couple of more for Justin Barney of Channel 4. Justin Press Taylor is another guy in the crosshairs from the Jaguar fan base. Like you said, doesn't appear anything's going to happen with him. Doug Peterson is falling on the sword for Press Taylor year in and year out, which is interesting. Uh, do you think the criticism towards Press is warranted? Absolutely, 100%. And, and especially when you look back at Doug's history in Philadelphia, you know, you promoted Press Taylor. You want to put him at offensive coordinator. Uh, Jeffrey Leary said, not a chance, and uh, we're going our separate way. So, you know, in one stop already, Doug has, has uh, really, as you said, fallen on the sword for Press Taylor and really lost his job because of his allegiance to Press. Um, he's he's very high on press, and I guess it, it goes for any kind of business. If you feel comfortable with somebody, uh, you trust somebody, you're going to trust that person regardless of what the outside noise says, regardless of uh, what somebody else may criticize. But, um, you know, press has got has to show something. I, and I don't know if, uh, if when Doug talks to Shad, if there will be changes or an understanding, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, when, when uh, Doug Marone and Dave Caldwell were there and they were on a short leash with Shad Khan. So I don't know if something like that will happen, but historically that has not happened with Doug Peterson. So um, we'll be interesting to see if, if any play calling is taken over after a, you know, analysis happens, but 
I think Doug is going to sink with the press ship, and I think you've got to see a significant improvement on the offensive side of the ball uh, in year three between these guys. It's got to happen. You've got to see Trevor Lawrence. You're wasting him on a rookie contract, 21 touchdowns, 14 picks this year. He's got 69 total touchdowns, 60 turnovers since he entered the league. Those numbers have got to be cleaned up for this team to take that next step. Justin, final Jaguar questions. I want to throw a high school one at you as we wrap up. Again, Justin Barney of Channel 4. Josh Allen, Calvin Ridley, two biggest priorities this offseason. How do you think those work themselves out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're going to re-sign Calvin Ridley, obviously you have to weigh in the uh, the factor of the second-round draft pick that you've got to send to the Falcons as a result of that. If you re-sign him, that was part of that trade. Um, I do think uh, Calvin Ridley replacement is easier to find than a Josh Allen replacement. Again, Josh is a guy like a Devon Hamilton, uh, you know, like a, uh, guys we've seen in the past re-sign second, uh, second contracts with Jacksonville. Hasn't been many of them in the last, uh, in the last 14, 15 years who've signed that second deal. With them, I think uh, I think Josh would maybe be just the third first-round pick since 2010 to re-sign a second contract with uh, with the Jaguars. So that's uh, that's unbelievably bad drafting right there. I think he is uh, the focus in this offseason. You know, Calvin kind of he had a good year. Yeah, he said he lacked a little bit of that chemistry with Trevor just because of their time together was a little bit uh, more uh, uh, truncated than than Trevor's time with Zay and and Evan and uh, and Christian Kirk. So. I do think uh, Jacksonville would get a better Calvin Ridley back in year two in the system. I just don't know if if they can afford him with uh, with so many other issues on this ball. I really think Jacksonville they, they need that alpha dog receiver. Calvin is he's kind he's kind of a Christian Kirk kind of guy. He's not that take over a game kind of uh, kind of receiver. And Jacksonville needs that big body receiver, a la a T Higgins kind of guy in that offense uh, to get going. I think Josh is definitely priority number one, and Calvin would uh, would be a soft priority number two. Justin, leave us with this. Coaching carousel in high school football, not spinning near as much as it has in the last couple of years, uh, but Bobby Ramsey back in the Duval County public school system a couple of years at Impact Christian. He now takes over on Main Street with the Jackson Tigers. Boy, on the surface, that appears to be a really good hire for Jackson. Yeah, good one. You know, after they they got Christopher Foy in there and he kind of reset the the program and got him to a number one seed in the playoffs before he left and, and went to Oakleaf, uh, fell fell down a little bit under Coach Bartley in his lone season there. But if you look at Bobby's career and you look at it closely, he's he's taken over an Impact Christian school that was pretty young and it's and it's uh, um, getting on the on the thing. They let him into eleven man football and. Um, he did well there at Yuli. He took over Yuli when it was still kind of a new program finding its way. Of course, it, ha- uh, it helps when you have a Derrick Henry coming through that system. But, you know, Bobby has, has had good results at schools that just didn't have that football tradition. And, you know, to get Jackson back to a level when Kevin Sullivan was there, to get it back to a level uh, when Christopher Foy was there, you need a little bit of that stability. You need a good coach there. And I think Bobby will do a great job there. He's done it before. He won a state title at Mandarin. He took Yuli to a state semifinal game when Derrick Henry's final year in 2012. So I think he's a good guy for that job. I know he'll be invested in it and want to want to get that program back right. Justin Barney of Channel 4. Justin, appreciate the time, man. Thank you as always, and we'll do it again soon. Take care, Hack. Thanks for having me. There you go, Justin Barney of Channel 4 here with us on Hacker After Dark. And look, every night this week, we're going to try to pick up the pieces, try to figure out what's going on, what's transpiring both locally, regionally, and nationally when it comes to the Jaguars. I think probably by Thursday or maybe Friday, 
I'll be in a good enough place to kind of preview the playoff games coming up this weekend. That's going to suck, to be honest with you. Watching Cleveland and Houston on Saturday, uh, Jaguars should have been there, but they weren't. Biggest collapse in franchise history, and this is where we are now. Lockers cleaned out, season's over, 10 assistant coaches fired, and we're only two days in to the Jaguar offseason. More on the Jaguars coming up in the 11 o'clock hour. Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar, does a terrific job covering the team from a fan perspective. Jordan will join us coming up in the 11 o'clock hour. Also, my buddy Brian Toporek of Bleacher Report and Forbes covering the National Basketball Association. We're almost to the midway point of the NBA. Teams are approaching game 40 of their regular season, so the midway point right around the corner, trade deadline less than one month away in the NBA. Brian Toporek coming up in the 11 o'clock hour. Coming up next, Brent Beard. You see him locally on First Coast News. You get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. The Michigan Wolverines hail to the victors, the champions of college football. And now as we turn the page to maybe the most anticipated college football season ever, the 12-team playoff, all the realignment, it is going to be nuts beginning in August. We'll take an early look ahead. Brent Beard, First Coast News, get him next. Right here, Hacker After Dark on a Tuesday. And Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. It is a Tuesday evening, and we are glad you are with us. College football crowned a national champion last night. The Michigan Wolverines, a perfect 15. And, oh, what a season for Jim Harbaugh and Michigan. And now we are at the changing of the guard for the entire landscape of college football. With all that, let me welcome in my friend Brent Beard. You see him locally on First Coast News, and you also get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. Mr. Beard, how are you, my friend? Well, um, I have some sadness because the season is over, but the excitement about what's coming next year overrides that. Uh, It was an amazing season uh, in a lot of ways, and as many problems that college football has uh, this season, at least so far, uh, saves itself. Uh, so that was um, quite a uh, – well, obviously the semis were much better than the championship game, but, um, uh, but kudos to Michigan for the win first time since 97 uh, as they were uh, celebrating – but all of college football is celebrating hack with the, uh, uh, the the upcoming changes in the game uh, and the expanded playoff for next year. Brent, I'm never going to be confused for a Pac-12 or Big Ten homer. I think I wear SEC goggles, much like a lot of people do in our neck of the woods. Having said that, boy, the game last night kind of snuck up on us, right? I mean, I had people yesterday – saying, wait a minute, the national championship games tonight? I, I'm i happy the playoffs coming because with the NFL schedule the way it is and Black Monday and the playoffs, I almost think if you were not a Michigan fan or a Washington fan or in that area, the game did kind of maybe catch you off guard a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, well, 
uh, and eventually, Hank, we we really have got to move this game off of Monday and put it on Saturday. Uh, that way, your fan bases can travel a lot easier. And, and for, for instance, the uh, it probably was a nightmare today with the weather system going through for all the people who were trying to get out of Houston. Um, so it would, and uh, just some things would be so much easier uh, to do it on uh, Saturday, but they have cemented this in for the time being, this thought of, uh, it, it, it's an antiquated thought that Monday night's still the great night and everybody's home. That necessarily that, is not true anymore. Uh, but I tell you, with the changes that we've got coming up, the the amazing thing is, uh, obviously, the night of the game being January the 8th, well, and, and next year, we will still have 12 glorious days <laughs> to discuss college football until the championship game comes up. So that that's how much the schedule is changing. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark. Again, congratulations to Michigan, Jim Harbaugh, and the Wolverines, the national champions of college football. You mentioned the schedule next year. Uh, it's going to be the busiest college football season we've ever had. The regular season will start on August the 24th. The national championship game, Brent, after the 12-team playoff, will be January the 20th. So you're talking five months, basically, of college football. And there will not be the layoff. For people that don't realize this, the 12-team playoff, the first quarterfinal games, or I guess the first round games, will start December 20th. Yes. culminating in the champion a month later. So you will have one month of college football playoff action beginning next season. Well, that's incredible. And it's, uh, I wish we'd had it three decades ago, but we've got it coming up. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Now, again, on December the 20th, and and, and, uh, and Hank, the coaches, uh, the coaches have got to get rid of this at some point. But the week that we start the playoffs, and there's going to be a Friday night game and, and I think three Saturday games, you've also got early signing period that week. <laughs> so imagine being a, a playoff team and having to deal with all that. So these are things that coaches have got to understand, and, and they've got to move some of these things out of December and I think eventually they will probably uh, be able to do that. But, uh, yes, uh, that that's what we've got that's going on. We will have, I believe, January 1st, we're going to have quarterfinal games, and then you've got about 10 days later or so, uh, you've got the semis. So it, it's going to be, a, it's gonna be uh, some adjustment. And a lot to get used to, but I can tell you it's going to revolutionize the sport when it starts. Yeah, 12 teams. Again, the top four will get buys. So you'll have five playing 12, six playing 11, seven playing 10, and, of course, eight playing nine. And the four winners of those first-round games will advance to the quarterfinals, where then the teams with buys will get involved as well. And, Brent, with the season ending last night and Michigan hoisting – the national championship, you think about 
the end of what we know is college football. I mean, yeah. the, the next time a ball is kicked off in a game that matters, UCLA, USC, Oregon, and Washington are going to be in the Big Ten. Yep. Texas and Oklahoma are going to be in the SEC. Colorado and Arizona and Arizona State and Utah are going to be in the Big 12. There will be no more Pac-12, and Stanford, Cal, and SMU are now members of the Atlantic Coast Conference. It's kind of a surreal feeling to think about that. Well, and that's really just the beginning. Uh, We're going to have Florida State leaving the ACC uh, in the next few months, and there will be other teams who will be right behind them. Uh, So, no, the changes uh, will continue uh, to evolve as we really are going to get to uh, uh, two mega conferences uh, with the SEC and the Big Ten, uh, and as that uh, shapes out. uh, So it it is really going to be uh, amazing in a lot of ways. So uh, that, that is... That is around the corner. Uh, it's going to be some adjustments, uh, but that's okay. Uh, we'll deal with it. In uh, expansion, will uh, will expansion will continue uh, over the uh, uh, the next few years. But it it it's going to be a, a very interesting off season as far as people realizing who's going where. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, I'm curious. You know, there's a there's a section of college football fans, college football media, that don't exactly like change, all right? And and, and we're having a yeah. drastic change. In your conversations among colleagues in the southeastern part of the country, media, et cetera, obviously you have strong ties out there in the state of Alabama. Do you think uh, people are excited about what's to come? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I, I think they realize, particularly after this year, that four teams does not get it done anymore, and they've got to do something uh, to make this uh, more equitable for everyone. Um, and but look, we were we've been very fortunate, frankly, in that uh, we had a. Uh, situation where uh, we were we were very lucky, weren't we, Hack? That we didn't have a Florida State situation before this year. Uh, so I mean, uh, having the four team as long as we did, basically a decade or so, uh, it 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 was just it was just very fortunate that someone else very deserving to get into the. Um, the final four, and there were teams that should have been in. There were teams that were deserving, but none of them really had the case that FSU did. So I think a lot of people are, are uh, interested in that. I think they also want to see, and this is to me the main crux of going to 12 instead of four, is the the amount of excitement that you're going to have in the month of November of fan bases who've got a chance to be in the playoffs. And see, we're going from like, uh, what, hack eight, nine teams uh, that were uh, in fan bases that were interested for the Final Four. Now we're going to have probably 20 to 25 who think they've got a chance, and they do to some degree, to get in 
uh, in November. So that's going to make November a lot more exciting than it is now. I mean, it's here. You know, the college football yep. season, the playoff is here. Now the, the season has ended, and the next time we are going to run out a champion, they're going to have to go through a 12-team playoff to win it all. Did you ever think we would get here as a sport? I was hoping that we would. It was very – I mean, I've been, and I admit this, uh, I've been a, a fan of the playoff for years, and we really should have had a playoff uh, even starting back in like the 70s or 80s. I never bought the, this ideal from presidents that it would ruin academics and these other flimsy, flimsy excuses that they had. Uh, what I'm also glad to see is, look, I like bowl games. But, but for until now, we put all the emphasis on the bowl games. Now we've got emphasis on the playoff, which is where we should have been 20 years ago, frankly, uh, is putting everything into the playoffs, and the bowls would take care of themselves. So, uh, look, for guys like me who've wanted a playoff for decades, uh, it, it's going to be a whole offseason of celebration. Final moments with Brent Beard. You get him locally on First Coast News. You also get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, the Gators were not active in the transfer portal for a while. That changed in recent days. As I believe they're up to eight or nine transfer portal guys, including Grayson Howard, who we talked about briefly last week, the young man from Jackson High School right here in Jacksonville who transferred in from South Carolina. They got a big offensive tackle from Arkansas. They got a couple of defensive backs. Uh, not the maybe the sexiest names, but Billy Napier did finish strong, at least in this portion of the transfer portal. Well, and you hit on something that needs to be repeated, is just because we don't know all the names and they're from smaller schools doesn't mean these kids can't play. So, yeah, there's been a lot going on still – they're trying to to uh, to build the staff. Ron Roberts of Auburn, uh, he was their D coordinator. It's like he's coming over. I think that's going to be a plus for them. Jack Miller at quarterback will no longer uh, be uh, uh, on the team. So certainly wish him well in what he does. Uh, some fans thought they would get Malik Benson from Alabama, the wide receiver. He ended up going to Florida State. Some of the guys that, that that you alluded to, Tulane defensive back, D.J. Douglas, has committed. Look, that Tulane team is a really good football team under Willie Fitz. They they have really done some good things there. Now, they've had, um, like, Liberty wide receiver C.J. Daniels has visited. Uh, they've had some guys go, like Richie Leonard, uh, on the offensive line, D.J. Lagway got the Gatorade player uh, of the year nationally. That's incredible. One of the bigger recruits was, and you you covered this guy uh, and what you do with Friday Night Lights, Grayson Pup Howard coming over um, a Jacksonville product who was at South Carolina, and Devin Manuel, the uh, offensive tackle from Arkansas, Six foot nine, three hundred and ten. So, to your point, Hank, they've been very busy. They have been, and Billy Napier is finishing strong. Now, the transfer portal is about to shut down, right, for a yeah. period, and then it'll open yeah. back up in the spring. Correct. Yeah, and see when it, uh, it the uh, the transfer portal actually closed last week, but the reason we're still hearing about it is. 
it takes three or four days for whoever goes in for that paperwork to go through and it be announced uh, a few days after that. So that so that's what's happening. But but you're right. Mid mid April it will open again. Uh, but right now it's closed. Now if you're a graduate transfer, it's open year round. But for everyone else, and probably for the sake of the coaches and for guys like you and me who cover this every day. <laughs> It needs to be closed for a while, don't it? Well, and it's an easy answer. People say, well, why is the transfer portal closed? Because classes have started. You have to be enrolled, right, in the January right. semester. Absolutely. They're back in classes yes. all over the country, and the sure. next time it'll open will be when the spring semester, right before that, begins there in, in April, as you mentioned. Uh, quickly to Florida State, kind of the same thing. Mike Norvell, the king of the transfer portal, maybe not so much this year. Lane Kiffin might be taking that title and boy, what they're doing at Louisville is pretty crazy as well. Really? But Norvell still closing very strong in January. DJU, obviously the former Clemson and Oregon State quarterback, and also some really nice wide receivers and guys they've added in the portal for Florida State. Yes. Uh, as, we, as we mentioned, they have added Malik Benson from Alabama. They've also added Devontae Brown, a Miami defensive back, 6'2", 185, spent three seasons at UCF. Earl Little, the Alabama defensive back, who never really played for Alabama but is a really good prospect, uh, is now going over there for his high school coaches, Pat Sertain, who is on the FSU staff. Yeah, I remember um, his dad. His dad was a good defensive back in the NFL, Earl Little. Absolutely was, wasn't it? Yeah, you're right about that. Tate Rotomaker is going to Southern Miss, where likely he will uh, also play. Uh, and you mentioned DJU, and you and I will get into that, uh, kind of the pros and the cons for DJU over the next few weeks. Uh, and, heck, if I may, real quick, uh, Miami is giving Lance Guidry their uh, coordinator, uh, the D coordinator, a raise because some people were uh, interested in him. Also, former Albany quarterback uh, Reese Puffenbarger uh, is uh, committed to Miami, uh, played at a Albany that people don't follow very much, but uh, he has 36 touchdowns, 3,600 yards in two years. Now, uh, another possibility is Maryland quarterback. This is Tua's little brother, shall we say, uh, Talia, who set some Maryland records when he was there. But he's out of eligibility because he played five games one year at Alabama instead of just four. Uh, so they're looking for a waiver for him. Uh, nothing set for that yet. But he's a good quarterback. And I can tell you, Hack, uh, Miami needs about three different quarterbacks to go along with Jacuri Brown uh, to give them a lot of uh, much-needed depth. Not saying this is going to come through, but just letting folks know that it's a possibility. And we'll be talking about it the entire offseason, that opener between Miami and Florida. 
That is gigantic for both it coaching really staffs. Is, no yeah. question. Mario Cristobal and Billy Napier both really need to win that one to kick off the 2024 season. You get Brent Beard on First Coast News. You also get him weekly right here on Hacker After Dark. Brent, appreciate it, my friend. We'll do it again next week. Uh, and, and listen, I will leave you with this. Uh, Washington, uh, obviously we know Michael Penix is gone but believe it or not, their quarterback next year is Will Rogers, the transfer from Mississippi State. What a that's a pretty familiar name to us, isn't it? Hank? Well, not only that, but you got to know like Riley Leonard from Duke to Notre Dame. Now yeah. that the transfer yeah. portal's closed, you got to take a look at what's happened and essentially what is college free agency over the it coming is. weeks prior to spring ball. Appreciate you, Brent. You too, brother. Take care. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. The Jaguar season has come to an end, losing five of their last six games from eight and three to no playoffs and what you could argue may be the biggest late season collapse in the history of the Jaguar franchise. Where do we go from here? we got to pick up the pieces. So we're talking about over the next couple of weeks with that. And we welcome in Jordan DeLugo, does a terrific job covering the Jaguars for Generation Jaguars, got the website and the podcast, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Jordan, how you doing? Well, I wish I could say I'm doing better, Hacker. How about you? Jordan, I'm in the same boat. I mean, just broad overview before we really dive in. How did we get here? How did uh, Houston miss a field goal and the Jaguars were 8-3 and three, to now six weeks later lockers were cleaned out at the beginning of the week it it is astonishing it is absolutely confounding astonishing there's a million adjectives you could use to describe what has happened to the jaguars but overall i think you have to look at everything right i do not think the jaguars had a good enough plan this offseason going from a nine and eight football team who snuck into the playoffs late to a team that could sit on their hands throughout free agency they could draft almost entirely backups throughout the day two of the NFL draft and day three. Um, I don't think that there was a good plan in place. Obviously, injuries do factor into what happened. There's no question about it. But you see other teams that are able to overcome injuries and, and continue to thrive. The Jaguars were not a team that could do that. I think you look at the roster building. I think you look at the injuries. I think you look at the coaching. This was a team that at times, especially on the offensive side of the ball throughout most of the season, at times down the stretch on the defensive side of the ball, that did not look well coached. It didn't look like a team that knew what they were supposed to be doing down in and down out consistently. And so I think you have to look throughout the entire organization and, and uh, you got to pick yourself up off the mat and you cannot have the same status quo going into 2024. You mentioned uh, the non moves last year. I completely agree with you. I mean, every night here, I said they need a pass rusher. And every time we'd go to a press conference, all we feel good about our young guys and they're going to develop and, you know, other than Trayvon Walker and Josh Allen, who were terrific, both of them, they did not have a third guy, a fourth guy, a fifth guy. They didn't have anything resembling a third guy that could affect the quarterback. They were wrong. Trent Baalke was wrong in his assessment of this roster. And the problem I have, uh, Jordan, is when you're making millions of dollars, if a guy like me on the radio can see you need help at pass rush and you don't do that, to me, that's a gigantic problem. Yeah, no question about it. And I think it's arrogance with, within the front office, you know, thinking we've, we're good. We made it. 
we've made the playoffs. We're a young football team. We're going to ascend in 2023 um, without really doing anything to improve the roster. And that was clearly wrong, as you mentioned. You know, they had opportunities throughout the year, throughout the offseason, to bring in players such as Jadavion Clowney, who was in the building, uh, such as making a real swing for a Daniil Hunter, which, you know, you've heard reports that they were really in on that, that they were close to doing it, but they didn't pull the trigger. Imagine if Daniil Hunter was playing with with Trayvon Walker and Josh Allen, how much better that pass rush could have been, how much better that defense could have been, right? So I think there was clear opportunities that were missed by this front office, and um, it's not just with the pass rush either. Uh, there's certainly other areas they could have addressed and should have addressed in this 2023 offseason. You get Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar. He's got the podcast. He's got the website. We'll tell you about those in a moment. He does a terrific job covering the Jaguars, and he's with us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jordan, both coordinators have come under heavy scrutiny. Let's begin with Press Taylor. Um, 11 plays on Sunday were completions of less than five yards. They just did not go downfield. Now, whether that was they didn't trust the offensive line, and I guess that'd be with good reason because they were awful a majority of the year. I don't know what the yeah. issue is, but Jordan, watching that offense with the caliber of talent that they had, something was off, and it was off definitely the last six weeks, and you could argue it was off. I mean, they didn't score against Kansas City. They didn't score against San Francisco. I mean, they, I think, scored one touchdown against Atlanta in London. It was off a majority of the year. Yeah, there's no question about that. I think Doug Peterson's fingerprints are still all over this offense. But he made the decision to let Press Taylor be the play caller, the full-time play caller, in 2023. That decision did not work. I mean, you could see from the beginning of the year, as you mentioned, Kansas City Chiefs game, week two, massive game, sellout crowd going crazy for the Jaguars. You can't score a touchdown. The very next week, the offense struggled against the Houston Texans. Um, they moved the ball. They did score a little, some points, but they still had their struggles. I think that you look at this entire season offensively as an unmitigated failure. And yes, down the stretch, that has been impacted by injuries. But before the injuries started to mount heavily, yeah, there a, was issues on the offensive side of the ball. And there's a I lot of questions. There's a lot of questions, Jordan, about Trevor Lawrence. And let's dive right in there. Look, the offensive line is awful. Uh, they had injuries at wide receiver, certainly. Uh, they can't run the ball with that O-line, particularly the interior parts of that O-line. But to me, a fair amount of criticism on Trevor, to me, is fair. Now, do I still want him here? Do I believe he's the franchise guy? Yes, I do. But I got to tell you something. I mean, if his agent comes in this offseason and says, hey, let's start talking Herbert money, let's start talking Burrow money, I'm going to look at him like he has three heads with the way this season ended. Yeah, you know, I think that it's there's going to be lots of opinions on Trevor Lawrence. My opinion is that if you watch him play over the last two years, healthy, healthy, there's no question he's a franchise quarterback. Now, what you saw down the stretch this year when he's battling through not only an MCL, not only an ankle, not only concussion symptoms, and then obviously the shoulder strain. I mean, this was a guy that was gutting it out, and this was a guy that – if you look at when these mistakes happen in games for Trevor Lawrence, I think almost every time where he makes a big mistake, and he did make plenty 
it it is a snowball. It's something that you see an Evan Ingram dropped drop pass on third down and then it's intercepted. You see a Parker Washington drop a wide open pass against the Ravens and then Trevor Lawrence starts pressing. And I think that when things start to fall apart around him this year, especially with the injuries, he started pressing. And when he started pressing, he would make big mistakes. And so I think that obviously you've got to grow personally from that if you're Trevor Lawrence um, and and you've got to be better, but you've also got to surround this kid with 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 more. You've got to do a better job to support this young quarterback. He's 24 years old. He has shown you the highs. Um, he has shown you the ability to be a franchise quarterback, and I think you need to support him uh, much more than you did this offseason and throughout this 2023 campaign. A couple of more for Jordan DeLugo here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Jordan, at training camp, you and I were down there every day. The offensive line, the coaches wore 31st in the NFL T-shirts that they had made because I think one of the websites had ranked them 31st coming into the year. That website was being generous, I think, in ranking them <laughs> 31st. They were awful. I mean, I've never in my life seen an NFL team, and I mean this. This is not hyperbole. I've never in my life seen an NFL team have more halfback runs where a defensive lineman met the running back before we basically got the ball. I mean, Travis Etienne could do nothing a large majority of the time. Now, look, I think the two tackles are good. I hope Cam Robinson's back. I think Anton Harrison could be a stud. But good grief alive. Left guard, center, right guard, something needs to be done in a big way there this offseason. There's no question about it. I think the it starts with the center position, in my opinion. Um, look, Luke Fortner, great guy, smart guy. Like him a lot. I liked him in the draft. But it has not worked out through two years. He has really, really struggled um, a lot in the running game. He's been better in pass protection than he has been as a run blocker. But it is not good enough. Uh, it is not good enough. The Jaguars have to do something about center. And I think at times you saw left guard and right guard doing so much to try to help center that they're not doing their own jobs. And so I think it really starts at center and then cascades out. Obviously, the injury situations at left guard this year really took its toll, in my opinion, at that position as well. Uh, you started the year with Ben Barr to – he was playing very well prior to his injury in 2022, had the big knee injury, uh, was not able to come back and play at a high level from that knee injury early in the season. Uh, and then you obviously have the rotating door after that revolving door, and it's hard to get anything going. Obviously, Cam Robinson was not able to play a lot of this season with the suspension and then also dealing with the knee injury. Uh, I agree with you that Cam and Anton Harrison is a very good tackle duo. Um but you're right. Something has to happen on the interior. In my opinion, if you fix center, it will help left guard and right guard greatly. But uh, I wouldn't just say, okay, we fixed center. Now we're good to go. I would make multiple moves to try to fix the interior of the offensive line. And I want to save a lot of the, will they re-sign this guy? Will they bring this guy back? We'll do that in a couple of weeks, you know, a month's time, free agency. We'll have you back on and we'll do more of that. But for the here and now, just a quick thought. Cam Robinson. I know he's going to cost a lot of money, but Jordan, I think I'm okay with that. You know, based on what I saw, you do not have a, a better left tackle option on this roster right now than Cam Robinson. No, you don't. And there are not a ton of 
better left tackle options on the planet right now than Cam Robinson. He's not an elite left tackle, um, but he's borderline top 10 in that area at the left tackle position. And, and that's just based off of uh, my tape evaluation. But I also see a guy that puts his, his heart and soul out there every time and brings a lot of energy and brings a lot of nastiness. And the Jaguars don't have enough of that on their roster. And so if you're talking about getting rid of a guy like that, how do you replace him? I don't know. I really don't. And look, he's only 28 years old. He's been in Jacksonville his entire career. I think this is a guy you want to keep around as long as you possibly can for the energy he brings, for the enthusiasm he brings, and for his play between the whistles. I mean, this is a good good offensive tackle right now. Jordan in the top. And uh, I will the, say. Yeah, go ahead. I will say. Uh, the contract situation, extend him. You save your money in 2023. Uh, or 2024, excuse me, you save your cap space by extending him, writing him a big signing bonus, extend him, ensure that he's around longer than 2024, and uh, you'll be able to save some cap in the meantime in doing so. I'd be good with that. I saw enough from Cam to want him around next year. Final moments with Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar, the website, and he's got the podcast we'll tell you about in just a moment. Quickly, Jordan, to the defensive side of the ball. I don't know if you saw Andrew Wingard's comments in the postgame locker room yesterday. I thought it was pretty telling, and I give Dewey credit for speaking his mind. Basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of there was not a lot of assignment football being played down the stretch. Is that an indication that he's saying guys were doing their own thing? I mean, how did you take those comments? Yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly what he meant. I think that you can say – Maybe guys are freelancing. I think that you can obviously see on, on the field there was – he's right. I mean, whether that's coaching or the guys not doing what they're supposed to be doing, either way it all goes back to the defensive coordinator. Um, if, if you can't convince your guys to do what's, what they're supposed to do or if they just can't do it, uh, I think that's the defensive coordinator. I think that is the talent evaluation part of it as well when you talk about in the front office – I think that there's areas on the defensive side of the ball where they're deficient in talent, where they made bets that were incorrect. And I think there's also um, just, I think you look at the two-year sample size of Mike Caldwell as your defensive coordinator. Have there been too many coverage busts? Has there been games where they look inept? Have there been games where they look like they don't belong on the field? I think that all of that has been present a little bit too much under Mike Caldwell. And I give him a lot of credit for for having them perform the way they did during the front half of this year. But you got to do it for more than eight games or however many games it was. You got to be able to put a season together. You got to be able to play tough assignment sound football when you need it most. And the Jaguars defense, the entire team, but the Jaguars defense did not do that in the biggest moment yesterday. Jordan, you uh, work on a website that's for the fans, by the fans, Generation Jaguar. I mean, what's your – What's your message to the Jaguar fan base after the – again, I, ca I keep calling it a fiasco because I don't have a better word for it. Actually, I do, but I can only use the word fiasco on my show or else I'd get in trouble. Uh, what, what do you – what's your advice to Jaguar fans now that from 8-3 and three to the season's over? I mean, it just it's, – it's surreal. Yeah, I mean, my advice would be be loud. You know, share your opinion with anyone and everyone that you can. I don't think it's necessarily going to impact anything that Shad Khan does, but all you can do is voice your opinion and, and fans should not be satisfied. 
with what took place in the 2023 offseason. They should not be satisfied with what took place in the 2023 regular season. And look, I said even if the Jaguars win that game yesterday, even if they are back-to-back AFC South champions, what you saw this year was not good enough. They were supposed to be the AFC South champions in 2023. And even if they had got that done, they would have gotten it done by the skin of their teeth, and it should not have been that close. And so I, I think that you voice your displeasure in any way that you can, and um, and you do not accept do not accept status quo. Do not accept mediocrity. The Jaguars accepted it last year. They cannot do it again this year. Tell us about Generation Jaguar, both the website and the uh, podcast that you have. Yeah, you can check out ginjag.com. We've got all sorts of Duval gear. We've got all the videos and podcasts up there. You can also check us out on whatever podcast platform is your favorite that you listen to. Ginjag got the show Duval Daily out pretty much every single day, sometimes twice a day. Uh, had a big episode this morning, obviously, talking about everything we're talking about right now, the collapse of the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2023. And you can check out the YouTube page as well. Uh, where you can get all the daily podcasts, Duval Daily, and that's Jim Jag as well. Hey, Jordan, appreciate it, man. I know you do a lot of stuff with the draft. We'll dial your phone again when it gets a little bit closer to free agency, and we'll try to pick up the pieces on what transpired once the offseason really gets underway. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely. Always great talking to you. Have a good one. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. Well, the Jaguar season is over, so let me give you a little bit of advice. Start following my beloved Orlando Magic. They are one of the surprises in the NBA this year. Paolo Bencaro, one of the best young players in the league. They've been horribly injured and yet they're still winning games. Let's talk magic. Let's look around the rest of the association with my buddy Brian Tapork of Bleacher Report and Forbes. He does a terrific job covering the NBA, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Brian, how we doing? Doing well. How are you? Brian, we're good. And look, Orlando, uh, their injury report is six or seven deep every night. <laughs> but my goodness, the way Paolo Bancaro's playing – it hasn't mattered. Boy, he is really coming on right now. Yeah, I mean, he's at least going to have a, a case to make the All-Star game here in a couple weeks. And, and you know, it, he was really impressive as a rookie. It only continues to build on that, which is exactly what you want to see. Uh, you, you know, you, you definitely don't want these one-year wonders where teams start to figure them out after their rookie season. But I, I don't think that's the case at all for Paolo. He's really continuing to build on the impressive flashes he's showed. And, you know, there, there are honestly a lot of good stories with the Magic this year, despite the lengthy injury list, as you mentioned. Yeah, who knows how good they could be if all the guys actually were healthy for a certain point of the year. I want to go back to last week. Uh, Orlando beat Denver in Orlando, I think, the night before Thanksgiving. And that was a big deal. But mm -hmm. some wondered, you know, it was early in the season. Maybe Denver wasn't Denver yet. Then Orlando goes out to Denver last week. It was the last game of a four-game Western Road swing that had really mm -hmm. not gone Orlando's way. Orlando had eight healthy bodies. Uh, Franz <laughs> Wagner did not play. Denver, that was their guys. That was the day after Jokic hit the shot to beat the Lakers. I have never – I shouldn't say never, but it's been a long time, Brian – since I've been more surprised about an Orlando Magic game, for the Magic to go out to Denver 
and with eight healthy guys and beat Jokic and Murray and the Nuggets, what a win for this team. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a 30-point triple-double from Paolo, which certainly helps. I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was the first triple-double of his career. Uh, I, I would say an outlier shooting performance, with all due respect, to Jalen Suggs, who shot 7 of 9 from deep in that game. Cole Anthony continued his strong play off the bench for the Magic this season with 23 points on 8 of 15 shooting. So an efficient night overall for them. Um you know, it was especially surprising, not only because they just, you know, didn't have Franz and a bunch of other guys, but Wendell Carter Jr. has actually fared decently well against Nikola Jokic or as well as anyone fares against Nikola Jokic these days. And he was also not playing in this game. So, yeah, despite, you know, when, when you're starting Mo Wagner against Nikola Jokic, the two-time MVP. You don't typically like your team's chances in that matchup, but credit to Orlando for pulling it out. Brian Tapork of Bleacher Report and Forbes. I promise we'll get to more than just Orlando, but I'm a long-suffering <laughs> Magic fan, Brian. You've covered the league for a while, man. The Magic have been awful. Mm-hmm. All they've known is loss after loss after loss, really going back a decade. They had, I think, two years where they sneaked into the – playoffs is like the seven seed one year and the eight seed one year but by and large it's been bad and now you got a bunch of young guys that they got through trades and through the draft and these guys like like Franz Wagner's year three Jalen Suggs is year three they've never experienced success I mean how hard is it for a team that knows nothing but losing to turn that corner because it appears Orlando is beginning to turn that corner Yeah, I mean, it's one of the trickier parts of any rebuild, as we're seeing with the Detroit Pistons. You know, they also thought they would be a lot better this year, at least compete for a play-in spot, and they are 3-33 and and set the the NBA's record for the longest losing streak in league history. So this is, you know, I, I often say there are a couple potential pitfalls along the road of any rebuild, where first you just have to get the guys in there you know your one or two star players and the magic nailed that with franz and with paolo so they're all good on that front then it's you know building around those guys you have to understand who your stars are what they are good at what they are not so good at and then building around their strengths and weaknesses finding guys who complement them well and i think the magic have done that i think they've you know, Suggs in particular has been such a good story this year because he's been great on defense from basically day one of his NBA career, but he really struggled offensively, especially his rookie season. But even last year, you know, you started to have some concerns like, ooh, is this guy not going to live up to being this number five overall pick? Now this year, the offense is really starting to come around. The defense is still elite. And all of a sudden, you're starting to see why they made him the number five overall pick a couple of years ago. So I think I think the Magic are for real. I was looking back at Forbes the other day, and you know, back in June, I wrote an article saying the Magic were a sleeping giant in the East, and I, you know, I, I felt that way then. I still feel that way now, although it's not really a sleeping giant anymore because they're, you know, tied for the fourth best record in the East right now. So they're they are here. I don't think they're on the tier of a Boston, Milwaukee quite yet, but. I think they have a very realistic shot at either. I mean, I was looking at the standings right now. It's absurd. Teams four through eight in the East are all tied at 21 and 15. So, you know, it's a very tight race for one of those top six seeds. 
I think they have a shot at one, especially, you know, Indiana is one of the teams they're tied with. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton suffered a very scary looking hamstring strain last night. And reports are he's only going to potentially miss a couple weeks. But I think Indiana probably drops a bit in that pack. You know, we'll see what happens. The NBA trade deadline is in less than a month. So we'll see if Miami, the Knicks, I know, are sniffing around trying to make other deals after acquiring OG Ananobi. So we'll see what other teams do around the conference. But I think Orlando has a real shot at a top 60. I would be shocked if they fell out of the play-in tournament entirely. And, you know, depending on matchup, I could see them giving a real challenge to a team in the first round. Brian Deporek of Bleacher Report and Forbes. Final question on Paolo Bancaro. I was talking to a buddy of mine, big NBA fan, where we both are, and we were trying to say, who is he? I mean, he's six foot ten. He's 245 pounds. He's only, what, 19, 20 years old. I mean, I don't really know what he's going to become, you know, three, four years from now. But, but I mean, mm-hmm. is he – I hate to put a, a, a legend of the game, but, I mean, is he Carmelo? I mean, is that – the body type, he's almost like Carmelo, right? I mean, do you compare him to anybody? Yeah, it's he's kind of anachronistic. Like, I, I can't think of a good recent comparison to him because, you know, you would think, like, high-volume scorer like that, Amari Sotomayor would be a name that came to mind, but he plays very differently than Amari. He's much more of a well-rounded three-level scorer than Amari, also a very good passer as well. So I don't have a good (laughs) recent comparison for him. I I think he's kind of one of one, and I think that's what makes him so special. Brian, you mentioned the Detroit Pistons and the land of parity in the NBA, or they certainly try to have parity. How does a team in 2023-2024 lose 28 games (laughs) in a row? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's – a combination of factors. Uh, they misevaluated their roster. They made some pretty critical mistakes, especially around last year's trade deadline, swapping out Sadiq Bay for James Wiseman when they already had a bunch of bigs and were short on wing depth. You know, Bojan Bogdanovic missed a bunch of time at the beginning of the year, so he came back partway through that 28-game losing streak, and they've been playing better since his return. But, you know, Cade Cunningham really needs shooters around him and the Pistons just don't have many shooters around him. So that makes him look worse and the entire team look worse when they don't have that type of offensive spacing. I mean, I think this roster just doesn't make a ton of sense. You've got a bunch of guards, you have a bunch of bigs, you really, really light on wing depth. I think Monty Williams, their new head coach, who they had to basically beg to take the job this past offseason, has made some questionable rotation decisions and lineup decisions, you know, not playing Jaden Ivy a ton, which you know, given the investment they made in him in the draft, just seems like a really bad idea. Um, you know, he's running out these all bench lineups when, you know, in general, all bench lineups are typically an uphill battle for teams. And especially when you're as talent devoid as Detroit, like I'm not, totally convinced they have 10 NBA, 10 NBA rotation players on their roster. So trotting out an all-bench lineup with the likes of, you know, Isaiah Livers and Kevin Knox and Marvin Bagley, like, you're just, you're, you're begging to get blown off the court. And I think that's, that's what's been happening. You know, the, the starters leave, the all-bench lineups come in, 
and all of a sudden they hemorrhage these, you know, 10 0, 12 0 runs and they just can't recover from it. So I think it's going to take some brutal honesty. And, you know, frankly, I'm skeptical that they're going to get to that level because I think they've made these mistakes and it's going to be so costly to fix them. I think they're probably just going to double down and, you know, try to take shortcuts to speed up the process of rebuilding in doing so probably hamper their long-term chances of building a championship contender, but you know, at least they can stop being (laughs) this embarrassing. They can just be a run of the mill, bad to mediocre team. The NBA record, I believe is nine and 73, right? Are they going to challenge that? They've got a shot. I mean, I guess we'll see. Like if, you know, I know Cade is now out for at least a week. So that's certainly not going to help. I mean, he is by far their best player. And if he misses much more time than that, it, you you get a little worried. I mean, they've, they have a bunch of veterans on expiring or effectively expiring deals. So they could, you know, if they trade Monte Morris, who's missed the entire season with an injury, Alec Burks is another name. Joe Harris isn't playing a ton for them, but he's another option that they could trade. Bojan Bogdanovic is the big one. Um, I believe he's $20 million this year, and then only $2 million of his $19 million salary is guaranteed next season. So I think you know, he's a high-volume three-point shooter, a very accurate three-point shooter. I think there would be a lot of interest in him at the trade deadline if the Pistons are willing to move off of him. You know, based on the reports that are coming out, it sounds like Detroit wants to be a buyer instead of a seller. So if that's the case, then I think the 9 and 73 is probably safe. But if they, if Cade misses a lot of time and if they do decide, you know what, we're, we're just going to embrace being this bad this year. Let's trade Bojan. Let's trade Alec Burks. Let's trade some of our other veterans. And yeah, nine and seventy-three might be in danger. Nine and seventy-three, good grief! Like you said, Detroit at the time we're talking, I believe three and thirty-three is their record. It is awful in the Motor City. Final moments with Brian Tapork covers the NBA for Bleacher Report and Forbes. Brian, let's go rapid fire. We got about three or four minutes left. Uh, the one big trade that already went down: Toronto and New York. Uh, Ananobi's a good player, great defensive player. Boy, Toronto. Mm-hmm. R.J. Barrett and Quigley, I mean, they they did pretty well in that trade, did they not? Yeah, I think it might end up being one of the best win-win trades we've seen in quite some time. I know the Sabonis-Halliburton deal is often held up in that regard, and I think this one might even be more of a win-win because, honestly, the Raptors were at real risk of losing O.G. Ananobi for nothing in free agency, and the Knicks based on all reports, we're pretty far away from what Emmanuel quickly wanted. He's going to be a restricted free agent this summer. So there's a chance these two teams basically swapped guys that they otherwise were about to lose for nothing. And I think both fill either a positional need or a, a, a skill set that they needed. You know, now New York has this elite three and D wing stopper in OG Ananobi. And when you're looking ahead to the playoffs and you say, I'm going to have to go through potentially Jason Tatum and Jimmy Butler and Donovan Mitchell, then, you know, an OG Ananobi is very useful in that regard. He was even taking possessions against Tyrese Maxey of the Sixers the other night. Like he's very, very versatile. And that's something 
know, a, a picture perfect fit with Tom Thibodeau in that regard. But to your point, I mean, Emmanuel quickly, I think a lot of people who paid attention to him in New York thought he was at least had some star upside and were frustrated by how the Knicks used him. I think because the Knicks had Brunson, he was never going to get a chance to really flourish there. But in Toronto, next to Scotty Barnes, I think he has a much better chance of living up to his upside. So you know, it, it really is one of these trades where it's, you know, it's not two teams. Like one team is Detroit and trying to sell its veterans and tank. Like these two teams are both trying to remain competitive. And I think both, you know, really might have helped each other out. Brian, we'll do it one more time before the trade deadline. Final question for you, though, right now. Uh, awful year for the Memphis Grizzlies. Obviously, it yeah. started with John Morant being suspended 25 games for those videos that came out last year. And he plays in, what, a dozen or so games, and now his season is over with labrum surgery. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a real bummer for the Grizzlies. You know, at this point, I think you just have to chalk it up to being a lost season. And the good thing from their perspective is now they are at least in line to potentially receive a relatively high draft pick. This draft class is not projected to be especially great, but still it's rare to be able to add a mid to high lottery pick to a core with three young stars, which is what they have in John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain. So, you know, it's obviously a very, very frustrating season for them. But, you know, given the hole that they fell into without Morant in the first place, they were already facing an uphill battle. Like, this is going to be a real bummer for them in the short term, but it might be the best thing for them in the long term to just embrace this as a lost season, you know, get a top five, top ten pick. If they hit on that guy have him on a rookie contract for four years when they've got all three of these other guys on their long-term deals as well. Like it, it could be wheels up for the Grizzlies as soon as next year. Brian DePorks, our NBA guy with Bleacher Report and Forbes here on Hacker After Dark. Brian, appreciate it, man. Let's do it again in a couple of weeks and preview what could be a very active trade deadline in less than a month's time. Appreciate you, my friend. Anytime. Looking forward to it. And thank you to Brian Topork of Bleacher Report and Forbes for joining us tonight, talking a little Orlando magic and a little association here with us on Hacker After Dark. My big takeaway of the evening, well, there are a couple. Number one, the report that came out earlier from Josina Anderson, who's covered the league for years, uh, about some maybe some turmoil, some issues within the coaching staff, some of the guys on their way out for the Jaguar coaching staff essentially telling her, that the guys that were doing it right are leaving, the problems are remaining. Now, is that sour grapes? Perhaps, but it's interesting to shed a little light on what exactly was going on internally. Look, you don't have a collapse, the magnitude of what the Jaguars did without probably some fighting internally, and I think you're going to start seeing that come to the surface a little bit when more people uh, are either let go or more people start talking about what was actually going on And secondly, the Jaguars, I think, did get some good news today. Mike Vrabel fired in Tennessee. What a terrible move by the Titans. I understand that he and Rand Carthon, the new GM, probably didn't see eye to eye. But Mike Vrabel, I think, is a heck of a head coach. And I think it's good news for the Jaguars that he's leaving the division. Because I really liked Vrabel in Tennessee. And I think that is a bad move today by the Tennessee Titans 
and we'll wait and see how it plays out. Well, that'll just about do it. Thank you guys for staying up with us on our late night show on a Tuesday here on Hacker After Dark. We have a ton of people to thank. Again, Brian Tapork, Bleacher Report, and Forbes talking NBA. Always appreciate Brian's time. Thank you to Jordan DeLugo, Generation Jaguar, for joining us to talk Jaguars, NFL, and more. As again, we're trying to put the pieces together, trying to figure out exactly what happened with this colossal collapse that the Jaguars had. Thank you to Brent Beard. You see him locally on First Coast News. You get him weekly here on Hacker After Dark as we broke down the national title game and looked ahead to a changing of the guard in college football. Now it's all about the 12-team playoff. The 12-team playoff is in effect, and that'll begin next college football season. And back in hour number one, my buddy Justin Barney of Channel 4, talking Jaguars and more. Certainly appreciate Justin for taking time out for us this evening. We will be back tomorrow night on a Wednesday, and we will do it all over again beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the hacker, Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for staying up late with us on a Tuesday here on Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Tuesday night, and we will talk to you again tomorrow night on a Wednesday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then... Good night, Jacksonville.